Hey friends, welcome back to the Beautiful Tension Podcast. My name is Gary and I'm stoked you're tuning in. This podcast, Beautiful Tension, is a place where we talk about the hard things we've been through. Yet, we also acknowledge the beauty that's come from those things. We talk about resilience, what it looks like to make this world better, and so much more. Joining us for today's episode is Tino Calif. Born and raised in Guatemala, Tino moved to the United States as a young adult. Though he didn't grow up religious, he came out after moving to the U.S. He was living in New York City, and during that time, he found that most of the churches around him were affirming. He shares how witnessing this love grounded him, led him to faith, and eventually marriage to his husband, Dave. Some of you might know the Caliphs as they are co-authors of the book Modern Kinship, A Queer Guide to Christian Marriage. The book was birthed out of their blog by the same name, Modern Kinship, and I highly recommend the book and the blog to queer people and allies alike. I'm incredibly excited for this episode. I found Dave and Tino's blog shortly after I came out four years ago, and it gave me incredible hope that one could have both a good life and even find love as a gay Christian. Their blog also led me to their church, an affirming faith community called Pearl Church here in Portland, Oregon, and they've since become good friends of mine. I'm grateful Tino took the time to share with us on the podcast today. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Tino, thanks for being here. Thanks for being on the podcast. Sure. Thank you for having me. I am super excited to have you on, not impartial at all, but partly as your friend and also as someone who has been following your journey, particularly as you got engaged to Dave and what your engagement looked like and following that journey, which in some respects, I'm sure we can touch on this later too, but culminated in your book that you all wrote called Modern Kinship. So all that to say, I'm excited to to have you here. So for those who may not know who you are, and you can answer this however you would like, but who are you? How would you describe yourself? Uh, so my name is Konstantino Kalev. I um uh, yeah, like uh, you mentioned, I, my husband, David Caleb, and I wrote a book that uh, came out of a blog that we had. Um, so it's a, the book is called Modern Kinship, A Queer Guide to Christian Marriage. So when we got engaged, we started blogging just about our experience as a gay couple of faith. And because we didn't, didn't really have any resources available to us. There were some resources for like straight couples and some very, very few kind of like secular gay marriage resources, but there were really no, no real marriage resources for gay or queer couples of faith. So we started that blog. I've been saying gay because I identify as a cisgender gay man. I, I have no qualms with the word queer. I do belong to, I guess, a generation that's still, you know, uh, we still grew up with queer as a slur. So we, um, I think my generation still tends to shy away from directly using the word queer. I don't have any strong feelings about it. Uh, I think it took me a while to embrace it, but I personally still I, I identify, I think gay is what describes me better. And 
Yeah, I don't know if you know, like that's a more jumbled introduction, but that captures it. Thanks for sharing. I, I mean, right off the bat, you know, so on this podcast, we of course talk about the hard things we go through, and oftentimes there is, we see redemption in those things, we see healing or goodness in those things, and other times we don't. But right off the bat, with your story. You talk about, or as you just shared, you talk about being gay and Christian and not having a lot of resources. I'm curious about your backstory with with faith and how that's come to be for you, and then where that meets you as a as a gay man. Would you mind sharing more about that? Yeah. So I grew up uh, pretty secular. You know, my family was uh, Catholic or is Catholic. So I received the sacraments. I was baptized. I had my first communion. I even had my confirmation when I was in high school. But church and faith weren't a huge part of my life. You know, I I think I believed in God. I, in high school, I had about a year when I started going to church more, a Catholic church, just almost not the curiosity about faith, but it wasn't a big part of my growing up. And when I was 19, I came across Ayn Rand, who is a atheist, novelist, and philosopher. And, you know, 19-year-olds are impressionable. And a lot of what she said actually, you know, made a lot of sense. And that just sort of convinced me of atheism. So for, you know, many years, I just considered myself an atheist in the sense that the existence of God didn't really like make much sense to me, but I wasn't an angry atheist, right? Like I wasn't rebelling against God because in a way, like I'd never had much of a relationship with God. So I I didn't have any like bones to pick with religious people. It just wasn't really a big part of my life. But if you had, you know, from ages like 19 to probably 27, 28 to my my late 20s, possibly pushing into 30, I would have said I was an atheist or different levels of agnostic, I think is how I would have described myself. Um, Then in my late 20s, I started going to an Episcopal church in New York City. I first started going because they had free uh, classical music concerts and it was a beautiful church in Manhattan in the East Village and with a lot of history. So I started going there for the concerts and then staying for the services. And that slowly started getting me to be curious about faith. Of course, by then I had been out of the closet for 10 years, you know, or close to 10 years. So, yeah, I came out when I was 20. So I'd been in a relationship for, at that point, yeah, a good six, seven years. Uh, Before my husband, I was in a relationship, in a previous relationship for nine years. That ended about five years before I met my husband and started dating him. So yeah, I, the Episcopal Church, I would say, was my first introduction to faith, really, as I understand it now as an adult and to, to church. And, you know, my sexuality wasn't an issue there. You know, the, by then, we're talking about 
2011. So the Episcopal Church had long been, at least certain dioceses within the Episcopal Church had already been like accepting different levels of gay unions. I do remember once I was already well established within the Episcopal Church and had confirmed, been confirmed in the Episcopal Church. I think it was 2000, early 2011 or late 2010 when New York State enacted marriage equality. And that raised, an, it was a really interesting moment for the Episcopal Church in New York because uh, there's three dioceses in the state of New York. So there's this, uh, the upstate diocese, the Diocese of New York, which covers, yeah, I think it's Manhattan and Staten Island, and then the Diocese of Long Island, which is Queens, Brooklyn, and the rest of Long Island outside of New York City. So within New York City, you have two Episcopal dioceses. And the way the Episcopal Church works for things such as, you know, same-sex marriage and all of that, it's up to the bishop in each diocese. So the Diocese of Upstate New York very quickly said, well, no, we're still not performing same-sex, any kind of blessings of same-sex marriages. That's a more conservative diocese. The Diocese of New York, I think either New York or Long Island, I forget which one was which now. I believe it was New York that took a kind of like a midway where they were saying, okay, um, priests can perform blessings of same-sex unions, but they're not the sacrament of marriage. And then the Diocese of Long Island went full on like, no, totally. You can perform the same, you know, we develop a liturgy and, you know, same-sex couples can be married by priests in the Episcopal Church. And they went so far as to require at that point that any same-sex or any like queer clergy in same-sex relationships within that diocese get married if they were living with their significant others. Because they said, you know, we require straight priests to be married if they are living with a partner. Now you have no excuse, you have to go get married. So anyway, that was the first time from a religious, like faith-based place where I feel like I first kind of like encountered a tension of how, but for me, I mean, I was living in New York City. My church was actually in in Brooklyn, so it wasn't, you know, it was very open. So, like, it wasn't personal, but that was the first time I started encountering. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. Uh, I, of course, and I, at that point, still had this image of Christians as evangelical Christians being these other people who, those are the, like, crazy Christians, right? Those are the, like, Westboro Baptist people. Uh, but I didn't really know any evangelicals. But then, you know, that's kind of like my journey started. I started making more friends with evangelical people. And I met my husband, who is uh, comes from an evangelical background. Uh, when we first started dating, I had moved to Los Angeles. And I started going to his church, which was an evangelical church. And that's where I started learning more about this world. But all that to say, my faith journey, that's, you know, that's my faith journey, like going from like, Secular Catholic to atheist agnostic to Episcopalian. And in a way, I feel like that was a gift because 
even though I recognized tension in others <laughs> regarding sexuality and faith, it was always something that I kind of like observed. I personally never felt that God was calling me to change my sexuality. I think part of that was having come to the faith seriously when I had already been out for a long time and having my first introduction to the Christian faith be through the Episcopal Church. I think that made a huge difference in just how my relationship with God developed. And yeah, that's so fascinating to me because the juxtaposition of Dave, your husband, who grew up in this evangelical world and has that religious baggage, warring with his sexuality. And then your experience was, I feel like I can say the opposite in a lot of ways where there was not that warring between faith and sexuality. And that's fascinating in so many ways, but I think especially because the former narrative, Dave's experience is so common in the U.S. and just in Christian countries that were founded in Christianity, starting to see some of that tension that the church had around legalizing same-sex marriage. Were there any implications of that for you? Was there any kind of, like, what did you make of that? What did you think about it? Yeah. Well, so you you, you bring up my, my husband, and I feel like that's kind of like what brought all of that more closer to home for me, because like I said, I feel like I still, even when I was back in New York at this like great Episcopal church, yes, I knew that within the broader Episcopal church, there was definitely conflict. There's, I don't know if you've heard of, you know, there's the people who call themselves the Anglicans within America, the Anglican church in America, who are a splinter group. That is probably very on PC for me to use these words. I'm sure there's lots of Anglicans who would take issue with me saying that, but they are a group that broke off from the Episcopal Church when the Episcopal Church started allowing dioceses to decide whether or not they were going to perform same-sex marriages. You know, so And that led to some really ugly situations within the Episcopal Church because you had all these, like, you said, you know, within dioceses, parishes and particular churches started breaking off and you would have like a situation where you had a church that decided that they were going to like align themselves with the Anglican church in America and leave the Episcopal church but technically the property the like church building and the land where the church was built was owned by the Episcopal diocese and this was just me reading things through all the, you know, the, there's a, I'm sure it still exists. It, it was a website called the Episcopal Cafe. And so all these blogs, kind of like Episcopal Church, you know, gossip and news. And, but, you know, some really ugly situations where you had like churches suing the diocese and like all these lawsuits for like, whose building is this? I feel like in a lot of like your world, like, and I, what by that I mean is like the evangelical world the rogue churches are the affirming churches, right? Like the churches who go rogue and who like splinter off and divide off are the affirming churches. And they're like the, and there, and so there you have the like larger body of the church saying like, oh, those people have lost their way because they're like, I think I was in New York City in a very liberal 
environment at a very liberal churches where everyone around me and the majority, because in this case it's the diocese, is affirming. And it was the minority, you know, it was just the like ran random, like rogue church here and there splintering off. So I always saw it as like how sad that there's people out there who hate people or are afraid of people like me so much that way they would like break up the church. Like how sad that there's people who would divide the church. Like the church is supposed to be one. We should not be dividing the church. And how sad is it that there's people who are willing to divide the church just because they don't want to worship with people like me. But I had, I was looking at it from the comfort of at that point being in the majority. I, I think I, I started experiencing the other side more once I like met and fell in love with my husband. When we met, fell in love, started dating. And it was the first time that I saw up close and personal the wounds that that messaging can, can leave. And, you know, the early months, I would say, of our, like, when we first started dating, they were fraught with a lot of conflict that came from him. Uh, and I saw that inner conflict in him. And then that created conflict in our relationship. I think at that point, I think we actually as a couple were lucky in a way that I had had the experience I had had because I felt for David, like I, my heart felt for him. So when I would like visit him at his apartment and like use the bathroom and saw a like post-it on his mirror that say, would say something along the lines of like, God, please convict me if you want me to end this relationship. And I realized that was a prayer he was saying every morning when he looked at himself in the mirror. Like, that didn't hurt me. It didn't make me angry. Because I knew at that point, like, he'd made it, about, it, it had become clear. I don't know, if, I don't know when we first said I love you to each other. But, you know, I don't, it, at that, I knew he loved me. Like, it had just, he, he had made it clear through his actions. I guess it was clear to me that he was in love with me. And I knew I was in love with him. So seeing those things didn't hurt me. I, didn't, I almost didn't even feel threatened by it. But I could see how difficult every step he was taking was for him. So I was able to, and I knew those were steps he had to take himself. So I was able to just wait for him. And I knew at the time that it's something that may not be like forever. Like I knew if, you know, if we'd been dating for a year, two years, and he seemed stuck, I probably wouldn't stick around. But I saw the steps he was taking, you know, he was like telling friends about me and then telling his family, his like, you know, immediate family, and then telling all his cousins. You know, I remember like the first time that he introduced me as his boyfriend, it was at a restaurant where he, he was working. It's one of my favorite memories of probably of our whole relationship. It's, and it wasn't that he called me his boyfriend. But it was just like he introduced me as his boyfriend and he looked back at me with this face of just like, like, a, like a puppy who's done some, something good and wants affirmation and wants to be said like, you know, good boy. It was just so adorable. I, it's like, I remember like that being one of the moments where I just like, 
you know, when, when you're in love with someone, you have these like moments of just kind of like flooding of emotion where the like love takes over your being. And I remember that being one of those moments where I just like felt that like flood of love just like swelling up inside me because I knew it was, it was such a big moment more for him even than for me, you know, like, yes, I loved being, you know, hearing the war, hearing him say the word boyfriend, but it was just like the moment, that was a moment for him, right? Saying, this is my boyfriend. And it's just like, I, I, to this day, I have a perfect memory of his face, like the shirt he was wearing, everything when he said that. So yeah, it was kind of like through him that I saw that other side, I guess, of the faith and sexuality experience. I want to follow up on that tension around family. I know in my story, in your story, Dave's story, most, if not all, most queer people I know, there's some experience of tension around family. And those relationships can be, I mean, this is not even doing it justice, but they can be so hard to navigate, especially when you get religion tangled up in it and political beliefs or whatever it may be. For the queer person who is struggling with their family relationships, where there's a tension around their gender identity or sexuality, what words of encouragement or wisdom would you offer them? Yeah, I, uh, so I, that's one tension I have felt for myself. I think the reason I, I don't always talk about that in the context of faith is that the tensions with my family regarding my sexuality had nothing to do with faith. Uh, it was more cultural than religious op opposition. You know, my, I think my parents were more upset about me being out than about me being gay. So we still had a long period of alienation because of that, because they, you know, they, I mentioned I was in a relationship for nine years before I met David and my parents never met my ex-partner. My partner and I lived together seven years. My parents visited me during that time and they never even set foot in my apartment because they didn't want to even risk running into my partner, you know, and at that point it was someone, you know, who I had like this one particular trip that I'm thinking of, like my ex and I had been together six years and had lived together four years because we, you know, we moved in together after two years of dating, but that it wasn't religious. Like it was just cultural and embarrassment having a gay son was embarrassing to them. So they just didn't want anyone to know. And I reached a point where I realized that wasn't going to change. And I, I realized I just needed to like let, it was during that trip, you know, uh, I decided I just needed to let go of even the hope of my parents ever meeting my partner or having any kind of meaningful relationship with me because what happens when you're in a relationship for six, eight, nine years with someone and you live with that person and your parents never want to hear about that person 
is that you stop talking to your parents about anything meaningful. You know, I would talk to my parents about the weather and politics and gossip about distant cousins whom I barely knew, you know, nothing. So my parents stopped knowing me, stopped knowing who, who I was. And I think for a long time, I held hope that they would someday want to get to know me. And I just, that just was not forthcoming. And every time that hope got crushed, it left a deep wound in my heart because I wanted, I think like most people, I wanted to be known. Um, I think in the end, a lot of, most of us, what we want most is to be seen, to be known. And your family, your kin are the people who are supposed to know you the best, who are supposed to see you the best. And when those people refuse to know you, it hurts. Like it leaves gashing wounds in your heart, in your soul. So I, at one point, by the time David and I got engaged, and my parents didn't even acknowledge my engagement to David, I just gave up. And I think I gave up hope. And I think sometimes you have to give up hope. I can't let this hope keep hurting me. Because at that point, it wasn't even my parents who were hurting me. It was hope itself that was hurting me. And it's very difficult to give up hope. It took me 15 years to give up hope because hope feels like death. But sometimes death is needed. You know, sometimes you need to grieve, move on, and just death is better than living in a vegetative state, right? And my relationship with my parents was in a vegetative state. So I just like had to let it go. And I think for my sanity, for my heart, for my happiness, that was what I needed to do. Uh, now, having settled that, fast forward, forward another five years and just October of this past year, so about eight, nine months ago, David and I traveled. My parents live in Guatemala and we traveled to Guatemala and he met them and he met the rest of my family. He had met two of my sisters who came to my wedding my oldest sister did not come to my wedding, also didn't even acknowledge it. Uh, I have a brother who was very supportive and happy for me, but he couldn't travel, so he wasn't here. So David went back to Guatemala with me in October. He met my parents, he met my older sister. And since then, you know, they were, at that point, I hadn't talked to my parents in, more than, in about five years. I hadn't really had any communication with them. I hadn't seen them in 10 years. And since that visit, you know, they, they were very nice and very polite to David and, you know, embraced him as part of the family. And so since that visit, visit there's been a rekindling of relationship that we talk to them more often. Now, I've never doubted that they love me. So they've expressed that love. And I feel like the five years of no communication made them realize that they wanted to be in a relationship. And, and that to be in a relationship with me, they needed to be in a relationship with my husband. So, yeah, uh, we have a relationship now. It's not close. It's just a relationship via text message, which is something. But we have a family group text, and both David and I are part of the family group text. And, you know, my mom messages David individually every now and then. And, you know, it's, we have a very polite, cordial, nice relationship. And that's, it's nice. But I, I think part of what allows me also to accept the 
superficiality of that relationship is that I accepted that my parents, uh, my older sister, there are certain people in my family who are never going to really know me. Uh, and that's, I stopped expecting that from them. So I can accept what we have now for what it is. And it's pleasant. It's cordial. I'm sure at some point in, you know, David and I will go back to Guatemala again and visit. Some of them might come visit here. So I don't know, circling all the way back to your original question, it's like, what would I want queer people to know is that, well, one, know that hope that is hurting you is not hope worth keeping. You should not give up hope easily. If you've been out for two years and you're frustrated that your parents haven't like joined PFLAG and aren't marching down Pride Parade with you after two years, don't cut off relationship with your parents after two years because it sometimes takes people more than two years. And I've certainly seen people for whom it, you know, as long as your parents are wanting to be in a relationship with you and able to keep that relationship. But if you are in a place where it's been, you know, and I don't want to put a hard line, like, because maybe two years can be excruciating to people and that I don't want to like be dictating timelines, but uh, if you are in a place where really relationship with your parents and hope of deep relationship with your parents is hurting you, give up hope. Like go, hope that hurts you is not worth having. And also know that sometimes accepting superficiality is fine. Like you don't, you know, your family of origin doesn't have to be the closest people in your life and they don't have to be the people who know you best between both of those pieces it feels honest and it also does feel encouraging in its own way so thank you for sharing that as we look to wrapping up i want to i always ask about resilience because i feel like it's such an important thing, especially in a world that is more often than not super chaotic and there's a lot going on, especially these days. So thinking of your story, what has kept you anchored or centered within yourself during the hardships? So dating Dave while he's reconciling faith and sexuality, facing your family where they couldn't and haven't fully accepted you in all the ways that you had hoped, what has anchored you? I feel like in, at different points in my life, I would have answered this differently. I think, you know, 10, 12 years ago, I would have said self-confidence. And now I, I would nuance that a little bit with self-confidence and knowledge of God's love. So it was the knowledge of God's love that I wasn't aware of, I think, you know, 10, 12 years ago, because I was in a relationship with God. In hindsight, I do recognize God's presence in my life, even through the years when I called myself an atheist or an agnostic, when I just wasn't aware of God's presence. I wasn't aware of it, but I recognize it there now. And I think they go together because to me, I experience God within myself. 
I believe, you know, we are created in God's image. I believe that the Holy Spirit resides within us and it's within ourselves that we find God. You know, those moments, those thin moments when we're close to God, I think when we're closest to knowing and loving ourselves well. So I think in my earlier, you know, in my younger days, I was always, I've always been blessed, I guess, to have a fairly strong self-confidence. You know, like I came out when I was 20 and my parents were upset and all of that. Like I, I never doubted myself. It was, they are wrong. But, and now I know that that self-confidence has come from God all along. Because now where I find it is, is I know God loves me. And I know the reason why I've been self-confident is because of God's love. And I just, I'm more aware of God's love now. And I think that's enriched things. I've been immersed in Brene Brown <laughs> during quarantine. I've referenced it on other episodes, but that reminds me too of in similar ways, her idea of belonging and that, I mean, in this case, she, well, what she says about belonging is that it's something intrinsic within you that you bring to situations. And it sounds like, you know, when you speak of the self-confidence you've had, what I hear in that and another way of putting it is that you've had a strong sense of belonging to yourself and that's kept you anchored over the years. I like that. And I like that belonging to yourself because I think I suddenly doubted, for example, whether I belong to Guatemala, uh, which is my original country, you know, the country where I was born. I doubted whether I belong to my family, but I've never doubted that I belong with myself to myself. And I think, and that's, I think, also captures this higher awareness I have now of God's presence and God's love. And, and it's, I think, I didn't have the language back then to say I belong to God, but I, that's what it's been all along. It's belonging to God. Thank you. So well put. As we close out here, for those that want to know more about you, follow you on all the social media and so on, where can they find you, your work? Yeah, uh, Modern Kinship on Facebook and Instagram. We haven't been very active on social media. You know, we kind of, our blog basically ended with, with a book being published. You know, we both have full-time jobs that have kept us busy than we want and not, not as much time to do, do this kind of like, you know, more like ministry type work. But a lot of our old blog posts are still available there on uh, daveantino.com. And there's a bunch of old photos on Instagram at Modern Kinship. <laughs> and one or two tweets on Twitter because we've always been, even when we were quote unquote still active on social media, we were always awful at Twitter. So, <laughs> Instagram and Facebook, Modern Kinship, and website daveantino.com. Perfect. I love it. Well, thank yeah. you, Tino. Great, thanks. This was great having you, having you here. Thanks for sharing your story and who you are with us and with the world. So thank you. Yeah, thank you.
Welcome to a segment I like to call the Resilience Room, a place where we share tips and tricks to living a more resilient life. For today's segment, I'm going to read you the words of Black writer and speaker Ijeoma Oluo from her New York Times bestseller, So You Want to Talk About Race. In the introduction, she writes, Yes, racism and racial oppression in America is horrible and terrifying. The feelings it brings up in us are justified. But it is also everywhere, in every corner of our lives. We have to let go of some of that fear. We have to be able to look racism in the eye wherever we encounter it. If we continue to treat racism like it is a giant monster that is chasing us, we will be forever running. But running won't help when it's in our workplace, our government, our homes, and ourselves. Letting go of fear and looking racism in the eye. May we do so every day. So this is where I usually ask, is there something that helps you with resilience? But instead, I'd love to feature the queer community on next week's Resilience Room. I want to know how has pride coming out and being queer made you more resilient? You can send a brief audio clip, no more than 30 seconds, to beautifultensionblog at gmail.com. Again, that's beautifultensionblog at gmail.com. I would love to share what you all have to say, highlight the queer community, and celebrate pride here on the podcast. I can't wait to hear what you have to share. Thanks, and we'll catch you next time. I haven't said so on the podcast yet, but happy pride. I find it fitting that we started this month with protests for racial justice happening all over the world. It was fitting because pride was birthed out of protests. I also want to highlight the Supreme Court's recent decision to ban workplace discrimination based on gender and sexuality, providing protections for the entire queer community and especially our trans siblings. What a way to celebrate pride! Speaking of which, I thoroughly enjoyed hearing Tino's story, and I hope you did too. I'm grateful for his work and his writing, which has helped pave the way for many queer Christians to live authentically, both as queer people and people of faith. As always, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen today. You, the listener, make this show possible. Speaking of which, if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider making a small donation to help support the podcast. You can do so at anchor.fm forward slash beautiful tension, which is listed in the show notes. You can also rate and review the podcast, share beautiful tension with your friends, and make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss future episodes. I appreciate your support. Well, that's all I've got for today. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time on Beautiful Tension. Thank you.